Lord, I pray for this message now for me here. I, I need your help, Lord. Give me the heart you want me to have, um, clarity of mind. Let me be in sync with your word. And then, Lord, do a mighty work in our hearts, all of us here as we open up your word together. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. All right. Well, I want you uh, to imagine that you're born in England, say, a couple hundred years ago. Okay? England's hundreds of years ago. Which would mean that you were born uh, into a reality where there's a king over you who rightfully has absolute authority over every part of your life. That's, that's the reality that you're, you're born into there. And there'd be, there'd be nothing you could do about it. I mean, you can't move out of the country because you get his permission. I mean, he absolutely has absolute authority over every part of your life. That's reality. You can't change it. So given that, you'd only have two options. You'd either submit to this king and hopefully receive whatever benefits from his kingdom he gives to his subjects, or you could rebel against this king and, and face the consequences. But those are the only two options. You're born into the reality of this king rightfully having complete authority over you if you're born into England hundreds of years ago. Now, what I'm hoping you'll feel and see and own up to this morning is that you've been born now into a universe in which that's the case. You've been born into a universe in which there is a king. God is the king. By virtue of his creating you and everything, God is the rightful king. You belong to him rightfully. That's the reality that you've been born into. This is the world we have. There's nothing you can do about it. This is it. He is the king. And so there's only two options. One is to submit to him, to surrender to him, and receive whatever benefits he may happen to give to his subjects through his kingdom, or rebel against him and, and face the consequences. So given that, the million-dollar question is, what's God like as king? What kind of a king is God? That's what I want us to think about this morning. Let's start by turning to 1 Samuel chapter 8 in your Bibles. And if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll, we want to bring one to you. It's really important to us here at Mercy Hill Church that we all have Bibles open, want to hear the pages turning, because the Bible is what's important here. My job is to, as best I can, explain the Bible to you. So 1 Samuel chapter 8. Keep your hands up if you need one. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8 is on page 230 in the Bibles we're passing out. 1 Samuel 8 describes one of the darkest days darkest days in Israel's history. But let me set the stage for the darkness of this day by asking uh, just this simple question. What kind of a king had God been to the nation of Israel? Okay? 
God had chosen Israel to be his people, smallest of all nations, a sinful nation, but God had chosen Israel to be his people. And so he was, especially in a theocratic way, he was the king of Israel. So what did it mean for God to be Israel's king? What did kings do, kings of nations do in regards to those nations? And there's three things. I just want us to evaluate God's kingship in each of these areas which describe what kings did. First of all, kings back in that time judged the people, which meant, the word judge you can think like condemn, but the word's very, very broad. It means kings made decisions and gave, made laws and gave direction, gave commands. That's what kings did towards their subjects. And so when you look at God's decisions and laws and commands and guidance, what you see is that Every time God makes a law, commands, uh, tells people to do something, every single time, the result of that is unbelievable good coming to the people. I mean, the, the, the biggest example I thought of, I think we've mentioned it in this series before, I know we have, is uh, what happened at the Passover. There's Israel, subject to Egypt. God's in the process of delivering them. But then one afternoon or whenever it was, God says, I want every family to kill a lamb, collect the blood, paint the front door posts of your house with the blood. What? That would have been a puzzling command to hear from your king. But those families that obeyed this puzzling command were absolutely overjoyed the next morning when they saw that because blood had been painted on the doorposts of their house, which is a picture of what Jesus would do, we now know, but they didn't know that then, which is why it was so puzzling, every family that had the blood on the doorposts of the house had their firstborn son spared. Every command, every law, every direction given by God, the King of Israel, brought unbelievable good to the people. So when you look at God, in terms of his judgments, God was the perfect king. Perfect. Every time he said something, you would do it, amazing good would come to you. Second, what did kings do? Kings went out before the people and fought their battles. So how did God do in fighting uh, Israel's Battles. Just a couple of examples. We, we know that he conquered Egypt and delivered Israel. They were slaves. He delivered them from Egypt. I love this story. We got the little picture up here when God had them all march around the city of Jericho and then shout, and God had these massive walls all come a tumbling down, as the old song goes. And then here's a list of every battle he called Israel to fight. Every single battle he called Israel to fight, he won against the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So God's got an undefeated record when it comes to fighting Israel's battles. He was the perfect king when it comes to helping them against their enemies. Third, last, kings sometimes delivered people from their problems, from their afflictions. And so how did God do on this one? Unsurpassed. No king even comes close. Every time Israel cried out to God, help us, save us, deliver us, every single time God helped them, saved them, and delivered them. Every time. So for example, uh, 
Obviously, when Israel was slaves to Egypt, they cried out to God. God amazingly delivered them. When they were facing the Red Sea, they cried out to God. God parted the Red Sea and delivered them. When they were going through the wilderness and they got thirsty because there was no water, they cried out to God. God delivered them, miraculously created water out of a rock. Boom. When they were hungry in the wilderness, crying out to God, God brought them manna in the morning and meat, quail at night. Every single time. There's not one time when God didn't respond when they called upon him to help them with their afflictions, to deliver them in their needs. So what kind of king had God bid to Israel? In his judgments? In his fighting their battles? In his responding when they call upon him in their afflictions? God was the perfect king. I mean, flawless. What an amazing king to have. Which then brings us to 1 Samuel 8. How did Israel respond after many years of experiencing God as her king? Perfect in judgments, in fighting her battles, in delivering her from all of her afflictions and needs. How did Israel respond to her king? Here's the answer. The answer is that Israel came to Samuel the prophet and said, We want a different king. We want another king. We want a human king. Now why? The perfect king. Judgments bringing amazing good. Fighting, winning all of their battles. Responding every time they had an affliction in miraculous, God-like ways taking care of their needs. Samuel, would you tell God we want another king? Now why would they say that? Look at verses 7 and 8. It's not good news. Here's why. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now, in this matter of asking for another king. So why did they want another king? Why did they want a human king instead of God? It's because they didn't want God as king. That's why. They just didn't want him as king. They were rejecting God. Yes, God's been the perfect king. We don't want you as king anymore. And and then in verses 10 through 18, in mercy, God sends Samuel to Israel, tell them how wrong this is. Tell them what their human kings will do to them. Tell them this is dead wrong for them to do. Samuel goes back, verses 10 through 18, tells them, Israel doesn't care. They want another king, thank you, because they just don't want God as king anymore, which is the pattern that we've seen all along here. Now, let's just take a step back. One of the points I think God wants us to see from this, and we've seen this through this series as we've looked at the story of God through the Old Testament. One of the points God wants us to see is that this is the same thing I have done and you have done in our lives. Each of us have not wanted God to be our king anymore, even though he has been the 
perfect king. He will be always the perfect king. We haven't wanted him to be king. And the root cause reason, which we've seen week after week after week, there's just no good reason for it. We think, well, there must be some reason. The reason is because Israel is wicked. The reason is because I've been wicked. The reason is because you've been wicked. This is so important for us to get right down to the root issue. Don't stop anywhere short of getting down to the root issue in our hearts. It's what the Bible calls sin. We would rather have our lives be screwed up totally and not have God be in control of us. Why? Because we're wicked. Okay? That's, that's as deep as you can go. Here's the explanation God gives. So let this, I've been trying to let this humble me this week. Lord, help me to see my sinfulness more clearly. Not just so I'm like groveling and all beat up, but just so that then I'll, I'll see the cross all the more joyfully. But you've got to start by seeing the reality of, of your sin. You have to see this. If you don't see the bad news, you won't love the good news. So see it. That's how Israel responds to God, her king. Now what happens next is quite strange. God could justly have just simply said, uh, Samuel, tell them, no. I'm their king. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no. Or God could, have just said, God could have just said, Samuel, don't go back. I'm just going to destroy them all. Start over again. He could have done that. He did that with Noah's flood, right? We've seen, and that would have been totally just for God to do. God lets Israel have her way. God raises up for Israel men to take his place as king. Now why? Why? God is the king. He's the rightful king. With all he's done, he deserves to be king a million times over. Why, why would he let other men take his place as king of Israel? And I, I think the reason is to show Israel and to show us New Testament, reading the Old Testament, to show us what happens when we all turn from God as our king. What happens? I would guess some of you um, are, are turning from God as your king this morning. I, I've been there, and I, I've, I've done that at times this last week, but my life, I'm seeking to have it be submitted to God's kingship now, but some of you have never submitted your life to God's kingship, and, and that's the problem. That is the problem. The other problems that we tend to think, those are not the problem. This is the problem. And, and God wants us to see that by seeing what happens in the three kings that God raises up for Israel. Let's go through their story. Start with Saul. God raises up Saul. It's Saul, David, and then Solomon. Start with Saul. Things start off well with Saul. Saul defeats, helps Israel defeat Israel's enemies, the Ammonites, for Samuel 11. But then things start to go downhill, Okay. Saul disobeys a clear command that God gave him, waits to offer the sacrifice, and Samuel, I'm sorry, Saul disobeys God's clear command. Then Saul comes up with this nutty command where he tells all the soldiers who are in the midst of fighting a battle, no one eats until we win this war. That's what he said. That's not a very wise judgment. Not easy to fight a battle on an empty stomach, okay? 
And then the next thing is that, again, Saul disobeys a clear command that God gives where he says that um, the Amalekites should all be devoted to destruction. So we see this strange pattern of disobedience and, and nutty commands coming. And so God goes to Saul and says, because of your disobedience, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and I'm going to give it to, to David. And then all kinds of chaos in Israel results from the transition. I mean, Saul's chasing down David, trying to kill him. David's fleeing for his life from Saul. Saul ends up killing uh, 85 priests who were helping David and actually destroys the whole town in which David had sought refuge. And utter chaos and division and heartache and pain and violence and bloodshed is going on in Israel. So, as a king, how did Saul compare to God? Okay. Then God raises up David. Now David is is doing better than uh, Saul. David, we read, has a heart for God. Saul did not. David has a heart for God, and David starts off with lots and lots and lots of victories in battle. Remember David and Goliath? That's the, one of the first stories. I love it. And then there's all these victories, so things are starting off really well. But then David has a season in which he tragically and in a horrifying way turns from God. Remember the story? David gets lazy, stops leading his soldiers into war, sends his soldiers to fight the war while he stays at home. So there's all these soldiers out there, like strong, studly soldiers like Uriah, who are risking their lives for David and for Israel and for the nation, fighting the battles for the king. David's home. One day David sees this woman taking a bath hot lady. Who is she? That's Uriah's wife. Bring her to the palace. He knew who Uriah was. Soldier risking his life for him and for the nation. Uriah's wife, she's hot, bring her. And in his authority as king, sleeps with her. When he finds out she's pregnant, what am I going to do? Bring Uriah back. Uriah, here, let's have a, let's have a dinner party. Go, go home, see your wife. Sleep with her, you know. Uriah will not take any comforts that his fellow soldiers can't experience. So he sleeps on the front door, doesn't even see his wife Bathsheba. David's plans are foiled. Sends Uriah back with a confidential message Uriah doesn't know, telling the leader, have Uriah be put on the front line so he's killed. David. He ended up repenting over this, broken before God for his utter sin. But tragedy and bloodshed and chaos erupted in Israel because of it. And then at the end of his life, again we see a grievous example of David disobeying God. He disobeys God, takes a census of Israel. And here's what happened, and as I best could read it, this did not put David in a good light. God gave him choices. One of the choices was, you suffer for what you've done. Another choice was, let Israel suffer for what you've done. David chose to let Israel suffer for what he'd done. You read it. I've never really noticed that before. And 70,000 people died. And David was broken as he saw his sin and his choice but it brought great cost to Israel. So, as a king, how did David compare to God? Do you see what God wants us to understand what's happening here? 
One last. Solomon. God raises up Solomon. Interestingly enough, Solomon was David's son by Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Solomon is king. Everything starts off great. Solomon is presented with, do you ask anything from me? God says, I'll give it to you. Solomon says, he could have asked for wealth. He could have asked for just anything. He says, would you give me wisdom to, to shepherd your people? And God gives Solomon amazing wisdom. You can read the, some of the stories of, of the illustrations of that. And Solomon is shown as deeply devoted to God. Read 1 Kings chapter 8, his prayer, and then the, the worship he brings before God, deeply devoted to God. And so as a result of his wisdom and his devotion to God, this is Israel's time of greatest peace, absolute peace. And her borders were enlarged more than ever during this time. And her wealth was unbelievable. She was so wealthy that the queen of Sheba fairly wealthy herself in her own right down south in the Ethiopia area, we think probably, traveled hundreds of miles north just to check it out and to find out, what are you doing, Solomon? I want to ask you some questions. That was the high point of Israel. But everything was downhill after that. Solomon has a season of terrible turning from God. He disobeys God and not only marries numerous women, but he marries numerous idolatrous women and builds temples in Israel for their gods. And if you can picture this, Solomon goes and bows down to Ashtoreth, I worship you, and Milcom, I worship you. Solomon, worshiping false gods. And the result of this is that idolatry becomes even more widespread in Israel. Civil war erupts in the country. The northern tribes end up separating from the southern tribes. Northern tribes continue in their idolatry and end up being conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C., And then a little over 100 years later, the southern kingdom, because of her idolatry, is conquered by Babylon, ends up being destroyed and taken into exile to Babylon. So as a king, how did Solomon compare to God? That's what God wants us to see. All right, Samuel, let them have their way. How does David, how does Saul, David, and Solomon compare to God? It's a dark time for Israel. There's dozens of other kings, northern and southern kingdom that I didn't mention, but it's, it's all the same story. But that's not where the story ends. Okay? Because there's a, a note of hope. God starts to give glimpses and a little bit obscure than becoming more and more clear prophecies of how God is going to bring Israel a king, another king, who will be different. Very, very different. And I want you to see three passages which describe prophecies about this future king. There's a bunch of them in the Old Testament. Let me just show you these three. What kind of king does God promise Israel? First turn to Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. What kind of king does God promise Israel? This is page 650 in the Bibles we passed out. Dark days in Israel. Divided, idolatry, sin, violence, bloodshed. Human king. 
But God promises another king in the future. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Again, that's page 650. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Hey, memorize the Old Testament books. You got them all. That'd be a helpful thing to do, all right? Just throw that out there. Listen to what Jeremiah says God is prophesying. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So God says, in the future, I'm going to raise up a king in the line of David who will be perfectly righteous and who will deal wisely, who will do only justice and salvation will come to Israel and Judah with this future king. Future looks good. Another king, a different king is coming. Second passage, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. This is the next to the last book in the Old Testament. Okay, Zechariah, and then Malachi is the last one. Zechariah, next to the last book, Old Testament, page 797 in the Bibles we passed out. This is an amazing statement of this king. This gets even better here, even bigger here. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Love to hear those pages turning. This is good. Pages, yes. Bible. This is it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Zion, just another word for Jerusalem, Israel. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That would have been puzzling until the triumphal entry that we see in Jesus. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. War will cease and he will speak peace to the nations. This king will speak that and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So God promises a king who's humble Enters on a donkey, ends all war, brings peace to the nation, and who's not just the king of Israel, but whose kingship covers the earth, whole globe, San Jose. Gets even better. One last text, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is page 573. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Isaiah's kind of like right in the middle, a little bit to the right. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Famous Christmas passage. Page 573. Bibles we passed out. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Perfect counsel, judgments, laws. Mighty God, this child, this son will be God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
Saul's ended, David's ended, Solomon's ended. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no ends. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You doubt that this is going to happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Lots we could talk about there. But here's what we've seen so far. God's going to raise up a king in the line of David. Completely righteous, deal wisely, save Judah and Israel. He'll be humble. He's going to bring peace to all the nations. His rule won't just be over Israel, but over all the earth. And then Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. This king will not only be a man. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Not only will he be a man. He'll also be fully God. His name will be called Mighty God. In monotheistic Judaism, you didn't use the name of God except for God. It's plain as day right there. This king will be fully God and fully man. So that's this hope, prophecy, that's being spoken through the dark days of Israel of what's going to come. So the big burning question then is, we've seen the predictions of this king. Who is this king? Who is this king? Put yourself in Israel's shoes. Waiting for this king and his kingdom. Longing for the coming of this king and his kingdom. Hoping, praying, pleading for this king and his kingdom. Waiting for the fulfillment of all these prophecies so that the king and his kingdom, this glorious kingdom would come. And then imagine that you're an Israelite, A.D., whatever, one or two, actually no, A.D. 30, adult ministry. You're in Galilee, and a man named Jesus walks into your town, maybe stands up on a well, and says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has arrived. Repent. And believe in the gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus Christ is the king that had been promised in the Old Testament. He himself said this. When when Pilate asked him during the trial, right before the crucifixion, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said yes. He was born in the line of David, fulfilled all these prophecies, came in on a colt, donkey. But Jesus wasn't just the king of the Jews. He was and is the king of the whole earth, the king of the universe. It's the whole earth. Uh, That's why he told his disciples, speak of my kingdom to every nation, tongue, and tribe. Take the good news of my kingship to every nation, tongue, and tribe. And try. That's why we want to talk to our neighbors. That's why we want to talk to people at work. Take the good news of my kingdom to every nation, tongue, and tribe. So Jesus is, right now, the king of planet Earth. Now, is this good news or bad? He said it was good news, but that's him, right? Is it, was this good news or bad? Well, let's just take a look at his... Rule. How did he live 2,000 years ago? What's his kingship like? 
think of one story when he sees a widow at the funeral of her only son. Widow, husband's died, funeral of her only son. And we read that Jesus had compassion on this widow. And what does Jesus do? He raises her son from the dead. Jesus as king has power and compassion. Think about the time when his uh, disciples, his followers were in a little boat uh, being severely buffeted by a storm. You know the story, one of my favorites. And they're all scared and calling out to Jesus and Jesus simply speaks a word and the wind and the waves stop. That's Jesus. He made the wind. He made the waves. They obey his command. Stop. Stopped. Power. Authority. I love all the stories when he's questioned by religious leaders time and time again, seeking to confuse him or to indict him in some way. And every time, his response leaves them speechless. (laughs) This king has perfect wisdom. Think about Jesus' teachings. You can experience this when you read Jesus' teachings, when you agree with Jesus' teachings and trust them and get in sync with them. Everything starts to change in your life. You trust him as Savior, King, Lord. Forgiveness comes upon you. His presence comes into your life. His love, as we were singing about earlier, your heart is satisfied like never before. You're filled. You see your life start to change in ways that you didn't think your life could ever change. Think about the time when Jesus was in the temple. Remember this? This is an important dimension of his kingship rule. And business people had turned the temple into a place of commerce. Money changers selling animals for the animal sacrifices. And Jesus is filled with holy rage. Throws over the tables. Sends the money flying. Gets the whip and drives them out. Saying, my house is a house of prayer. To love that king. Love him. And then there's a time when he was getting pretty popular, lots of crowds around him. Moms want to bring their kids to him. Would you bless little Johnny? You know. And the disciples are all, excuse me, ma'am, busy, important man here. We we got we got things to do. Jesus says, wait a minute. Let's sit down. Come here, Johnny. Come here, little Jane, you know. And he loves and cares for the kids. When you read the Gospels, Jesus being the king of the universe is the most sweet, hope-giving, strengthening, encouraging message you could possibly hear. But there's a problem. You may be feeling it right now. If not right now, you have in the past. No matter how much goodness he shows, no matter how just and righteous his rule is, no matter how powerful he is, there's something inside of us which doesn't want to receive him as our king. And that what that is, that's called sin. But the good news is that Jesus in his kingship has taken care of even that. Okay? He was beaten 
and scourged with that whip and had a crown of thorns crushed upon his head and was nailed to a cross. And by his dying and receiving God's punishment against sin, Jesus made it possible for the power of sin in us to be broken. He broke the power of sin for those he would save. And he made it possible for the forgiveness of sin to be experienced. Now don't miss who was on this cross. I was just really struck with this this week. Who was this on the cross? Remember the soldiers had taken a little piece of wood and had carved in it in mockery, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and had nailed that up on the cross. But it just struck me this week that what the soldiers meant in mockery gives us the most clear frame picture of our king. The cross. The king of the universe. Through Jesus, we read in Paul, everything was created. For Jesus, everything was created. Our king, the rightful king of the universe died on the cross to save us rebels from our own rebellion. Then after Jesus died, God raised him from the dead to make it clear this was no death of any ordinary criminal. Jesus is the king. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of the whole earth. And he'll be king forever. Okay? Now, what does this mean for us? Let me just give you two, two thoughts. The first is, I want to do all I can to, this morning to persuade you to surrender your life completely to Jesus Christ. Listen, he is the king. He is. Rightfully so. He created you. You owe your life to him. That's why you're here. That's why this world is here. That's why I'm here. That's why you're here. He is the king. And when you see his deity, his godhood, his power, his love, his compassion, his integrity, his authority, his justice, his humility, his death on the cross, when you see that, I just want to ask you, how could you not surrender your life completely to him? Do you you see his love? Do you see his awesome power? Do you see his wisdom? His his care for you? Do you see it? So don't you want to just completely surrender your life to him? That is the key. You must surrender your life to him completely. Some of you may think that you have Jesus as Savior even though you have not surrendered your life to him as king. But you can't divide Jesus. The cross has king of the Jews, king, as the sign. You can't take one without the other. The the only way to experience Jesus as your savior is to surrender to him as your king. It's the only way. Please, please surrender your life to him. As king. Now that doesn't mean that, okay, I've got to get my life perfectly good before I can even come before Jesus. It doesn't mean that at all. What it means is you take your life as it is, 
with all the junk and all the things like, oh man, yikes, there's that, and ooh, there's that. You take your life as is and you say, I want to surrender all of this to you. Would you take me? Would you change me? Doesn't mean you become perfect. You won't become perfect till heaven. Okay? So just get that burden off of you. But it means you need to be willing to surrender every part of it to him. It means there's no part of your life that you're willingly holding back from him. This is very serious. You may have gone to church for decades. If there's part of your life that you're willingly holding back from Jesus, you're in a very, very dangerous place. I don't know what's going on with you spiritually. I don't know if you've been saved or not, but you don't know either. If there's part of your life you're willingly holding back from Jesus. Again, that does not mean every area of your life's perfect. It's not. It's are you willing to surrender that part of your life to him? Right? You can't know Jesus as Savior unless you also surrender to him as king. This means you want every part of your life surrendered to him. There's no part you're holding back. And when you do this, when you surrender every part of your life to him, saying, Jesus, here, take me as I am, change me. I want you to change that area, that area, all of them. I want you to change all of them. Forgive me. Come into my life. Sorry for my rebellion. Save me. At that moment, everything will change. Is that an overstatement? Everything will start to change. That's, that's better. Everything, everything will start to change. You'll receive his forgiveness. You'll know him personally for the first time. Your heart will be satisfied with his presence. You were made to be satisfied in knowing Jesus as your king. So I just want to do everything I can to, to plead with you to surrender your life entirely to Jesus. Every part of your life. Every part. It's so easy to say, well, I go to church, so this is okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. Any part of your life not surrendered to the king is treason. Right? Oh, but, the, but I'm, I'm submissive in every other area. Well, that just means you're getting your way in every other area. This way it happens to not be your way, so you're going to rebel in that area. It's not good. Right? Talking about money? Did you care for the poor? Uh, sexual issues? Porn? That area of unforgiveness you're holding against your husband or your wife or somebody? Whatever it might be. Take that and surrender it to Jesus. Say, would you change this area? I give it to you. He will go to work and he, he will change that area. He will change that area. Surrender your life to Jesus. And then, second thing I want you to, to take home with you. See what you have in Jesus. King Jesus. If you surrendered your life fully to him, he's your king. He is your king. And so what that means is that you can call upon him and he will meet you in every affliction and every distress. Every single time he will meet you, help you. It means every sin, if you're fully surrendered to Jesus, every sin, past, present, and future will be forgiven because of his death on the cross. It means he'll provide for your every need. He'll provide. It means he'll guide your every decision. You're facing some tough decisions right now. What should we do? I don't know. We, yikes, big decision. He will guide you. He'll strengthen you whenever you face temptation. Whenever you're discouraged, he'll breathe hope into your life. He'll give you love for people you have a hard time loving. 
He'll help you be diligent in the workplace if you've been getting lazy. He'll bless your family. He'll meet you in your family. He'll rule over every circumstance. He'll give you love for your brothers and sisters in your home group so you're devoted to them, care for them, build them, pray for them. He'll give you boldness to to advance the gospel in your neighborhood and in your workplace. And all through this, he will constantly be satisfying your heart with himself again and again and again. That's who you have. That's who you have as your king if you're surrendering your life fully to Jesus. Let's stand together. Let's have the worship team come up and I just want to urge you, if you, if your life is not surrendered to Jesus, do so now, please. Surrender your life to him as it is. Ask him to change. Don't hold any part back. Or if you think maybe you have surrendered your life to the Lord in the past, but there's an area of your life that you know full well you are not surrendering to him now. Surrender it to him now. Submit it to him now. It's treason not to. He will forgive treason if you'll repent and surrender it to him. So please do so. And if you are surrendering your life as best you know to Jesus, then I just want you to rejoice in your king, in who he promises to be to you right now, this afternoon, this week. So as Dave leads us, just let this truth, the the good news of Jesus' kingship, just wash over you and surrender your life fully to him and Rejoice and trust him for who he is. Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven, his his kingdom, his reign, his rule, is like a man who found a treasure hidden in the field. And from joy over that treasure, he went and sold all that he had and bought the field. To have Jesus as your king... To be part of his kingdom is worth everything. Surrender your life fully to him. And trust him for everything that he promises will be yours. As part of his kingdom. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross without which none of this would be good news for us. Thank you for your love displayed so clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.